CEO Money. I'm Michael Yorba. Thanks for joining with us. All right. My guest today is Harry S. Dent. He is the author and founding editor of Dent Research. Harry, welcome back to the show. How have you been? Oh, good. It's been great, Mike. All right. Give our audience, it's been a minute since you're last on the show, but give our audience some background on you, what Dent Research does, and then I want to get into a list of questions that I have for you. Okay, yeah, but basically, I am an economist. I call myself a rogue economist because I see things very differently and use very different indicators. And I basically stumbled on it being a uh, Fortune 100 consultant after going to Harvard Business School. But I learned the most when I started working with entrepreneurial ventures uh, and CEOs of small businesses in, in my consulting. Strategically, I found the baby boom coming along in the early 80s and how massive they were and, and new technologies. And, and, and so I basically did research for my clients that ended up turning into a whole different methodology for economics. So I look at generational spending trends, incredibly predictable, not just when people spend the most money, but from cradle to grave, everything they do, technology cycles, the progression of such technologies on a predictable S-curve, and, and many more cycles from inflation to commodity cycles. I can pretty much project, what I tell people, what I do now, what I stumbled into doing over the last 30 years is I can help businesses and, and investors and people see the key trends that are going to impact their business, their life, their family, their investments over the rest of their lifetimes. And economists would say that's impossible. I would say economists don't know what they're doing. They don't understand under the hood what really drives the economy. They're just looking at symptoms. Now, with that being said, one of the statements that has come to my direction from you has been about how could stocks be so strong in the weakest economic boom in U.S. history. I'd like to understand that statement better. Well, you know, my first breakthrough indicator after my 10,000 hours of immersion in the 1980s and research was the generational spending wave. I, I moved forward the birth and, uh, immigration adjusted birth index. For the peak in spending of the average family, which was 46 for the boomers, it's now 47 for millennials. And it tells me when the economy is going to grow and when it's going to slow and how stocks follow that. And stocks follow it perfectly with all their wiggles in between. And basically that indicator, the most fundamental indicator I've had now for 30 years, says that stocks are overvalued 114% from where they should be. And guess what? That's exactly how much earnings per share have increased faster than actual corporate earnings because companies have been taken 5.7 trillion dollars in the last nine year ten years since 2009 with all this free money and in artificial cash flow from central banks and bought back their own stocks and shrank the flow so so earnings per share which actually drive the stock market has grown 119% faster than actual earnings. And that's how much stocks are overvalued. It's all artificial. That's why stocks have become totally divorced 
from Main Street. Wall Street and Main Street, not the same. The slowest recovery in history, 2% a year on average. Real GDP from the uh, top in 1929 to 1940 in the Great Depression, that 11 years was 20% real cumulative gain. And in the same 11 years from 2007 through 2018, 19% real cumulative gains worse than the great depression so yes the worst economy in history and stocks the greatest bubble all financial engineering and it will not last well one of the statements is that it's not just the private sector it's also governments causing more incentive programs to keep this bubble going what are you thinking about that statement yeah, well, I mean, I mean, we've seen everything. We've seen central banks coordinate globally. That's never happened before. Print unprecedented amounts of money, 12 going on 13 trillion from, from all the main central banks. And there's another 6 trillion to be out of all the banks uh, uh, in, in smaller countries and stuff. And then on top, now you have Trump giving tax cuts to corporations, which, of course, all my business subscribers love, but were they needed? Corporate profits are the highest as a percent of GDP in all of modern history, all of U.S. history. And that's not the time you give tax cuts. When Reagan did it in the early 80s, companies needed them. The economy needed it, needed more capacity. Companies don't need more capacity when they overinvested in the greatest bull market in history. And so what do they do? They buy back their stocks. And, and you know what? I, I hate to say this. The dumbest money in stocks today are corporations buying their own stocks. It's almost 100% of the net investment since 2009. They're buying at the highest prices and valuations since 2000, and they're going to look like idiots, corporate managers, when that crash and all the cash flow of their shareholders was spent buying their own stocks at inflated prices to give them incentives and, and, and to goose their stocks in the boom, that will all disappear when we get the deleveraging and the bubble crash and bubbles always crash. There are no exceptions in history. Otherwise, I would entertain arguments that, well, Harry, maybe this time it'll be different. This bubble won't crash. No bubbles have not crashed and they always crash finally. They, there are no soft landing for bubbles like this. Two real quick questions on these points. Number one, you've got to have telltale signals when you think that, you know, the the music is going to stop and there's no, you know, there's one less chair on the table or on the deck. Do you, can you give us any insight into the the end of the road for the government and well the public and private sector for this bubble occurring or popping? Well, you know, it, it is much more different, uh, difficult, because in all of my studies for, you know, I've been using 30 years, all my indicators, they're based on a natural economy. This is totally artificial since 2009, when central banks pretty much took over free market capitalism. And of course, special interests have been taking over democracy for a long time. So, so it's not the same. So I look at indicators that uh, people don't see and would not expect. Right. Uh, one of them is the smart money index. Smart money trades in the morning, first 30 minutes. I mean, I mean, in the afternoon at the end, this dumb money trades in the morning and reactions to the futures markets overnight and stuff like that. So that index in the last year or so has gone down faster and more than any time in history. And that says, hey, we're getting close to a top. Home construction back in the last bubble peak in 2007 
Home construction peaked in late 2005. That's when I warned people the real estate bubble was bursting and it burst just months later. And that was a great leading indicator for the recession starting in early 2008. That same leading indicator says we're likely to move into recession in early to mid 2020 next year. Um, I've got other indicators, patterns in the market that also point to early 2008 is the most likely time. I would like to see one more stock correction to scare people out, one more rally, and that would complete some stock patterns that would suggest it. But I'll tell you, normal indicators like the yield curve inversion and stock overvaluation, they've been overvalued uh, for a long time. And, and, and so those are probably not going to work as well. Right now, I'm expecting this to go uh, maybe a little bit longer early next year, and then the odds start working against the market. Now, now the one caveat, and, and it's got to be obvious at this point, is, is the Donald. Uh, Donald's not only cut corporate taxes when it wasn't needed, uh, and, and look how long that stimulus lasted. It's already fading. We got one goose from it, and it's gone. It's a one-time thing. He's talking about cutting payroll taxes, which is the same as other people have been saying, helicopter money, just send it straight to consumers. Don't rule out him giving a big tax stimulus direct to consumers, and maybe even says you have to spend it by the election to, for him to try to get reelected. Will that extend this in well into 2020? Maybe. My bets are still this thing's going to peak, and I'm looking more at the stock pattern for that. If I see one more strong new surge to new highs in stocks early next year, uh, I'm going to be saying, yeah, I think this is it. If we correct more and then the stock market takes longer to do that, then then I could see a delay. But but my best bet is early next year for a peak. Uh, but we're going to have to roll with the punches here because governments will do and have done everything to keep this bubble going. I mean, this there's there's no precedent for this in history all of this stimulus globally coordinated and tax cuts at the top of a boom. Tax cuts happen when the economy's down, not when it's up. Okay, I can see some fundamental reasons uh, as we go into 2020. We have elections coming up uh, for one more strong rally, a little oversold, because I'm, t uh, Harry, I'm a technician. You and I go back a ways. We've had each, you know, you've been on the show a couple of times over the years that we've known each other, and we we tend to be in agreement on two different ways of looking at it, fundamental and technical. I, I agree with what you're saying, and I have a number of other people that I respect too that um, years ago have given us this same kind of a time frame um, of the market topping the and the underlying economy not being able to sustain the continued growth. And I agree with you again on the, the Trump effect, the Donald effect, because this guy can pull a hat out of his, uh, or a rabbit out of his hat, and you know that would be one more goosey jump to give everybody that last, what is it called, the 20 you know, hip, hip, hurrah, here we go again. All right. One of the other things that I wanted to bring out about your special type of analysis, the statistical analysis that you go to great lengths to really to curate and to bring out to the people that subscribe to your service is 
you say, and I want you to clear this up for the audience, that longer-term economic trends are easier to forecast than short-term. Most economists flip that, and they don't agree with you. Tell us why you're, you feel that longer-term trends are easier to, to forecast than short-term trends. Okay, well, again, I look at cycles, things like the sun coming up, you know, the four seasons every year, things that are clearly happen, clearly in cycles, and we have no control over. I'm telling you, 7.7 .7 billion people today could pray at the same time, and you're not going to stop the sun from coming up. So I look at those type of cycles. Um, so so uh, longer term, as you go out, there's fewer and fewer cycles that affect the longer term trends opposite in the short term there's many many more short-term cycles and in the short term just like this tax cut in 2018 and maybe a payroll tax cut in 2019 or sending every household five thousand dollars well that's something that can change politically and and you we can guess but it, but you don't know what's going to happen till it happens so the short term is much more complex in the short term though i always narrow it down to two scenarios uh, in the long term, there's one. Demographics, technology cycles, geopolitical cycles, and I've nailed all of those. It took me 30 years to get them all, and even boom-bust cycles driven by sunspots about every 10 years. But that can be 8 to 14, depending on the cycle, and scientists know how to call those pretty well. I've got those things nailed down. I, I can tell you, Michael, I can sit down with an audience or even a young kid and say, hey, Here's the cycles you're going to see 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Here's we're, we're about to see the end of a depressionary, deflationary winter season in the next two, three years or so. And you know what? But you as a 10-year-old, here's when you're going to see your depression, your bubble and deleveraging. I can tell people that today with, with a very reasonable amount of certainty. I just might be off a year or so, again, because of short-term factors at the time. The short-term is harder and, and the long term is what's more important. If we're on the right side of the equation longer term for our business planning and our financial planning and our life planning, even, I, I tell people to tell when to tell your kids to be in school more and more in the workforce, things like that, all types of things you can plan ahead. Uh, you can do that because the long term trends are more projectable. The short term is always a guess. And I have to work hard, like you say, a technical analysis. Technical analysis is much harder. I have to work very hard just to come up with those two scenarios and then and then lean people. I mean, I, I just had one recently where the stock market would have a more minor correction in this time frame and have one more super surge up to 10,000 NASDAQ. Well, gold just broke up importantly and stocks are breaking back down and it looks like instead we may see a bigger correction in stocks one more surge that might only go up to 8500 or 9000 nasdaq and that would be the final place so that's my two scenarios that was from the beginning but now it's leaning more towards scenario two as it works out so that's the best i can do in the short term and i tell you i always say hats off to technical analysis people much harder job like like it's e much easier for me to tell a joke in a speech than it is to be a stand-up comedian that's a technical analysis more like being the stand-up comedian that's a good way to put it um the i'm a i'm a student of cycles myself and i have an old buddy of mine garrett i, I think you might even know garrett anyway he's uh, like the con conondorf wave every 64 years something bad happens another 64 years something bad happens but then the third time something really bad happens 
happens. And that's what I'm getting from you now. This is the time when something really bad could happen. Let's explore that just for a second. We've got time to talk. The really bad scenario. Open that up for us. Unveil that. Where, where do you see that really hitting, having the biggest impact? Are we talking about hyperinflation, a currency crunch? I mean, are, what, what, where, how do you see this unfolding? And what would it look like at the bottom if you can go out that far or if you want to? Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Definitely not hyperinflation. I'm not, I argue with gold bugs more than I do traditional economists because they see the crisis. They see you can't print money forever. They think it's going to be hyperinflation from runaway money printing. The context is important. Let me start with uh, my most fundamental cycle is two generational booms and busts over about 80 years. It's a new stretched Contradiac wave, which is only happening in this cycle, but it is happening in the cycle. It's not 60, it's 80. And, and basically inflation peaked in 1980 and we moved into the fall bubble boom season like the you know early 1900s and roaring 20s and now we're due for the winter season but the truth is we actually entered winter in 2008 remember what i said earlier cumulative gdp real gdp has been just as weak slightly weaker than 1929 to 40 during the last winter season of the worst of it and the great depression so what we're seeing now is a flip we entered the winter season, 2008 looked exactly like 1930, major banks and financial institutions failing, major corporations from AIG to General Motors, government has to bail everything out, and unlike the 1930s, printed massively more money and globally stimulated, so that what we saw was a deep recession to start off from 2008 to 2009. And then a this bubble that's gone even higher than the previous bubble, which didn't happen. There was a bubble from 32 to 37 from government stimulus in the 30s. This bubble went to new highs because the stimulus was so massive. So what we're gonna get this time from my view is we're gonna get that big crash, the 29 to 32 crash, the 80 to 90% crash, not the 50% crash, you know, the 15% plus unemployment, not the 10% unemployment. Maybe it's gonna be 20. The worst of this will hit at the end of winter instead of the beginning. The winter season is 2008 through 2023. I've said that for 20, 30 years now, predicted that in advance, because that's so predictable long-term. That's the difference. Because of the unprecedented stimulus, we get the, we kick the can down the road successfully, so we get the worst on the end. But it will be mostly over by 2023-24 for the economy, and probably by late 2022 or so for the stock market if we get this peak in early 2020s, I expect. So that's the difference. Now, another reason, and this is my most important cycle today, and it's something I only got about 60, 70 years ago, I, I added to my demographic and geopolitical cycles, a technology cycle that I could finally get down. And I'm telling you, this is a clock of all clocks, 45 years. Steamships, railroads, automobiles, jet engines and transportation, I could go on anything else. This cycle, every other cycle, every 90 years creates super bubbles at the end of the cycle. Mm -hmm. So the lad, there, there was a super bubble into the 1830s that crashed in the early 1840s. The biggest, that was the biggest depression in the U.S. and a real estate depression at that before the Great Depression. The next one was 29 to 32. Those are 90 years apart. The bottom in 1842 for stocks and the bottom in 1932 exactly 
90 years apart. This same cycle is will hit from 2020 to 2022 with a bottom projected in around late 2022, exactly 90 years. So we're coming up on a 90 years, right about now, 90 years anniversary to the 29 to 32 crash and i think that's what we're going to get at the end of winter again instead of the beginning and the reforms will come fast the deleveraging will come fast now that the rubber band's been stretched by so much stimulus things will fall apart faster than central banks can react this time next thing you know it's all over banks have failed and we're ready to slowly start come out of it uh so that's that's the difference so it's a combination of my very projectable 80-year, two-generation, two 40-year booms and busts cycle, and this 90-year double technology cycle, which in history, if you look back at the stock market, back to the Industrial Revolution in the late 1700s, the most outstanding stock cycles have peaked every 90 years on super bubbles, and, and the greatest depressions have come in the years following that. That's the most important cycle in my arsenal, and that is what's about to hit. That's the big surprise that nobody is going to see. And if this doesn't happen by 2022, I'm gonna quit my profession, move to the Gold Coast in Australia and be a limo driver. Okay, okay. That's how I am. Now, I got just too many things pointing to this period. Looking around the corner here, because with every time we, we get a peak and a trough, then it seems that there is a new technological breakthrough. We're into a new type of economy. And it, in this case, now that we have all of these cryptocurrencies flowing throughout here, starting to become uh, absorbed into the, the system, like Fidelity now has a crypto fund and so on. Do you see new technology coming in? If so, what kind and what part does crypto play, if any, in the 23, 24, 25 and so on uh, era? Okay, Michael, that, that, that is a great question. And that, that's been one of my biggest insights in the last several years. This 45 year cycle was the last one it took me to nail down. Um, it, it, it is a, a very predictable cycle. And, and, and again, we just saw the peak of that, we're, we're coming into the peak of that now. It's really due for 2019. So, so if you look back every 45 years, especially every 90, you'll see these peaks. We're in the height phase of that cycle, the final part where the new technologies, everything from biotech and nanotech and 3D printing to cryptocurrencies, those are the new technologies, but they're in infant stages. I mean, Bitcoin and all the cryptocurrency valuations through ICOs are, even, are a fraction of what the internet IPOs were in 99 and 2000 in their same stage. So every one of these 45-year cycles has two S-curves acceleration. You had portable computing first and then the internet to leverage them in, you know, in the last 45-year cycle, and that's peaking. So we're seeing the beginnings of the next 45-year cycle and the first S-curve in that, which is still in its infancy, all these technologies. Biotech is the most advanced, and it's still not mainstream. It's when those technologies move mainstream every 45 years that you get the biggest impacts of this cycle, and that is still far away. That's my only cycle that doesn't turn up until 2032. So to understand technologies, you've got to get the overlap of S-curves. 
technology, there's always innovation, but again, it's when the most important technologies move from 10 to 90% on an S-curve in a short period of time, you know, usually like about 14 years or something like that. So that's when you have the biggest impacts. And, and in between, you get old technologies maturing and you get new technologies emerging, but the new technologies, even though they're growing the fastest and they get highly valued early on, overvalued in a hype stage, they're, they're not big enough to impact broad stream of society. What, what is cryptocurrency? It is nothing. Bitcoin is not even worth anything compared to the world economy. Now, I'll tell you, in 20 years, I've got Bitcoin pegged on a 20-year, give or take a year, lag to the whole Internet cycle. Internet had a big hype cycle, a big bubble early on when dot-coms had no sales, very few profits, and the ones that did have sales in any scale, AOL, were valued at 400 times earnings, which no sizable company could ever grow to meet. That was the hype bubble. 20 years later, we're seeing the same thing in Bitcoin. This is going to, it may have one more, uh, I'm projecting one more wave up if stocks bubble to 30,000, then it'll crash 95% like the internet did in early 2000. And then you'll see a long-term boom. Cryptos and many other technologies will become the next big thing. You don't want to touch them until they crash first. And if you do have Bitcoin, sell on the next surge if it happens. I do think it's possible still by early next year or even early, it could be 30, 32,000. Then they will have done equivalent to the internet bubble, hype bubble, and then I'd get out and wait for the real bull market from around say 2022 forward into 2036, 37. That's, that's my lag. So that's this 45 year technology that might, when I started my research and really breakthroughs in the late 80s, demographics, these generational cycles were the biggest impacts on everything from inflation to booms and busts. This technology cycle is now my number one cycle in my hierarchy. Demographics is number two. Geopolitical is number three. This is the most important cycle and the one that has had the greatest correlation the farther I go back. Demographics weren't as important when we didn't have middle class consumers. We only had middle class consumers after Henry Ford created them with the assembly line revolution. Most people were peasants before that, didn't have the income to be important. People became important when the Bob Hope generation entered the, uh, the economy for the first time after World War II with assembly line jobs, manufacturing jobs that made them middle-class consumers for the first time in history. That made demographics an important cycle. But technology's always been king. Now, on that note, before we move forward, because I have more questions for you, one of the, the uh, hallmarks of being somebody that's really with it these days in technology is the ability to, one, at least understand the term artificial intelligence, and number two, to have a product connected with that. How do you see that unfolding as we're going forward? Do you see it pervasive, or do you see it secularized? In other words, it's only really going to be predominant in big data industry or something of that nature no 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 this is the next big thing artificial intelligence is the best way to sum up this whole new 45 year cycle in 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 two words i mean so it's everything cryptocurrencies you know um you know artificial intelligence that makes everything smarter down to little sensors everywhere that do stuff you don't even know and feedback stuff you don't even know this is huge but it is again in its infancy 
uh, and it is not anywhere near mainstream yet. Now, one of the biggest things I get from other technology people, I was just meeting with a super scientist that's starting a whole institute in Puerto Rico where I'm at, and he's like, oh, when art of AI comes along, it's just going to create, it's going to put a, tons of people out of work and create a whole new thing and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, no, 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 no. Artificial intelligence is the only way that the middle class person of the past is going to become super middle class and increase their standard of living again because it's going to augment their intelligence and make them way smarter rather than these assembly line jobs they're losing in manufacturing and service jobs which never required much skills. The whole secret to the assembly line revolution in mass manufacturing with Henry Ford and all of that in the early 1900s was you could take people with low skills, put them on an assembly line, move the work to them, have them specialize on one thing over and over again and be 10 times more productive with no skills. That was the secret. Now people, now of course, people in third world countries can compete with those jobs and these people, their wages are stagnant and or they're gonna lose their jobs and, and forget the immigrants and the Chinese workers in Vietnam and Turkey and everywhere else. After they take over your jobs, the, the robots will take over their jobs. That is dead because those jobs don't require skills and they're repetitive. So to get people to make decisions and to run small businesses within corporations, you know, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs within corporations, front lines, back lines, specialists, all types of teams, you have to make them smarter. You have to feed them information that tells them every customer what they want, when, how profitable they are, down to the product, down to the purchase. This can be done with artificial intelligence today. It's just a little more expensive. In management, since they love bossing people around and don't, run, don't want companies to run around the customers and, and, and to run from the bottoms up without their damn supervision that, that, that slows everything down and adds cost and bureaucracy. Managers are the slowest to catch on. I always say management's the problem, not the solution. Too much management, put management's information and best skills in the frontline workers' uh, hands with automated intelligence and, and, and real-time systems, and those people will be, will be able to make much more money for your company, make better decisions, more customized products and services, and that will be a win-win for customers, companies, and everyday workers. Jack Stack in Ohio has already proven this. He teaches all of his workers the game of business, gives them the information, lets them make better decisions with that information, and now he's got a factory of millionaires. Not middle class, super middle class. That's the future. AI is going to bring the middle class back after making the upper class rich at first, as any technology does when it's in their niche phase. I'm glad you said it that way so it can be embraced rather than feared. All right. The, one of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about is the, the, your book, Zero Hour. Tell us about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that book uh, came out in... Uh, I think it was a late 2016, just as Trump was getting elected and said, hey, we got a political revolution on the scale of democracy itself in the late 1700s on a 250 year cycle. Another clock-like long-term cycle before the American Revolution in 1776, there was the Protestant Reformation in Europe, which is still one of the biggest factors in Europe today, separating the richer, the more fluent from the less, the north from the south, all that sort of stuff. So this is another important cycle. We said this downturn is going to accentuate this cycle. Trump 
and Brexit were just the beginning of this cycle. And it's not going to be the end because it's going to require that we change everything through redesigning our organizations around networks that operate from the bottoms up, organize around customers, like I said, instead of management and back line. That's going to be the revolution that will change politics and business organization for the decades coming forward. And that has clearly not happened yet with all the progress we've seen in the information revolution. This has to happen first. That's what this book's about. I'm going to come out with a new book probably early next year and talk about how this bubble burst and where the opportunities are for the next boom. And it's going to be very different. Emerging countries not developed. Asia in particular on another 165-year cycle. Asia will be dominant in the coming decades as they were in the early 1800s until the West became dominant into the early 80s. That is all switched. So again, that's what uh, Zero Hour is about. Um, and I tell you, uh, everything's happening, we said in that book. The only thing that hasn't happened is this damn bubble hadn't burst yet because they've kept it going. So that's, that's the one final thing. Once this bubble burst, it will force companies and governments to change faster and adopt these network approaches instead of holding on to the old top-down politics and management. That's what's holding back human evolution right now. Harry, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Don't don't stay so long in between visits. I appreciate that. Hey, and real quick, Michael, harrydent.com, free newsletter, daily newsletter, so people can keep up with what I'm saying because this bubble is is not is going to be tricky and get to know us. So so you go to harrydent.com, get on the newsletter. All you do is put in your email. That's simple. You got it. Thanks, Harry. Thank you, Michael. All right, you've been watching CEO Money with Michael Yorba. Thanks for joining with us. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And don't forget, HarryDent.com. We'll be right back after these brief messages. <laughs> 